Hello and welcome to The Switch. This is the series where we speak to inspirational people, each of them wildly successful in their own fields, about big turning points in their lives. I'm G Footit and I'm lucky enough to get the chance to quiz these people about the precise mix of skills, behaviours, traits and drive, and also the sheer grit that got them to the top of their game. In particular, I'm interested in the pivotal moments, the light bulb moment that propelled them to a new level. I want to drill down into that moment and find out what it was that convinced these remarkable people that they could switch up. This episode though, we're doing things a little differently. This time I'm in the hot seat and I've invited a special guest who knows a thing or two about major life changes. He'll be asking the burning questions and leading the conversation today. He runs his very own podcast about what it takes to move into and succeed in the world of financial planning. It's Sam Oakes from Financial Planner Life Podcast. Sam, welcome. Gee, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, The Switch. Very uh, interesting that we're we're switching positions today and I'm (laughs) hosting your podcast, which is an absolute pleasure and an honour. So thank you for having me today. So those that don't know me, I'm Sam Oakes, as you said, from the Financial Planner Life. Three years ago, I set up the Financial Planner Life podcast to give an insight into what it's like to work within the financial planning profession. As you know, and I know, there's a distinct lack of people coming into the profession. So what I do is I interview guests at varying stages of their career about the ups and the downs and realities of working within the financial planning profession. We're on episode about 150 now, so it's been a hit. So when you say I know a thing or two about the financial planning profession I genuinely think I do these days so yeah it's fantastic to be here today with St James's Place and G obviously big fan of you so thank you for having me thank you so much well we're calling today's episode leap of faith the aim of today's episode apart from putting myself in the hot seat for a change is to share some insights on how all of us successfully navigate changes and make a leap of faith Our lives are full of moments, turning points, opportunities, and we all have our own processes and inner strengths to draw on, which I can definitely attest to. And I hope that my own experiences will resonate with some of you out there. So Sam, over to you. Fantastic. And you're absolutely right. You know, life can be a leap of faith, can't it? You know, we make these changes, turn different roads, different directions, and all of a sudden we're doing something completely different. Now, today, first off, G, what I want to do is just kick things off by just really, first of all, understanding where you are currently in life in respect to personal life and your business. Okay, so personal life first. That one's easy. Um, So I'm married. I have a daughter. My husband is called Ben. My daughter is called Zara. Zara is six. She's at school. She's just started year two in September. And we live in northeast London. So that's where I am in my personal life. My husband is a financial advisor, so I get an insight. He's he's not within the St. James's Place partnership, which is brilliant because I get an insight from both within SJP and also what's happening outside of SJP. In my profession, I've worked the majority of my career in wealth management. I had a stint of about six years in banking. I had also a short period of entrepreneurialism, which I know we're going to like get back into later. And for the past five years, I've been working at St. James's Place within the academy, predominantly in the recruitment area. So when I first joined, I was one of their recruitment managers. And now I sit within the marketing division and head up our strategic partnerships. Fantastic, which is obviously how we've met, you know, the partnership, the strategic partnership with the Financial Planner Life and the Financial Planner Life Academy. And we've been introducing some people to you guys over the years. And it's been such a great partnership. And I'm so pleased to to have formed it. So happily married. Interesting that your husband's a financial planner. I love that because you do get an insight, don't you, into how other financial planning firms actually operate and those within the business. It's a business. And I was talking yesterday, I met up with one of the founders of Monzo Bank yesterday, and we were talking about the profession as a whole. And it is a profession that seems to have a huge amount of entrepreneurs within it. It's not established like accountancy or solicitor route, right? It tends to be a lot of financial planners all running their businesses in lots of different ways. So by being able to see the profession as a whole, I get to see that. I get to see all the differences and all the different businesses and how they all operate and the types of people that actually come into it from all these different professions because we're crying out, aren't we? We're crying out for people to join the financial planning profession. Absolutely. And it is an entrepreneurial hub. So yeah, looking forward to getting into detail. A little bit about your entrepreneurial background because I know that you went down that pathway. So let's learn more about that as well. You obviously had a stint in financial services. Just tell us a little bit about how you got into the financial services. So I was at school and I was in, I think, year 10 at the time and they were doing work experience. And there was a teacher at my school whose husband was a director of a financial advice firm. And I ended up doing my work experience there. 
that's really how I got into the profession. So for me, work experience is so important and it's important that we provide opportunities to people to come in, get a feel for what professional life and corporate life looks like for, for students. And we actually just had a successful work experience program over the summer, both in person and virtually. But that is really where it began for me. Once I finished my A-levels, I went and got a job within that business. So the first three years of my working life were the connection through school and into financial advising. Uh, as an administrator at the time. So in my teens, my late teens, I didn't go to uni at that stage. In my late teens, I joined that firm as an administrator and started working through what were then the uh, entry-level qualifications to giving advice. Did you always know that you wanted to go down the route of becoming an actual advisor? Was it something that you pre-planned or was it something that you learned once you got into the financial services? I hadn't planned to be an advisor. I think I, when I was at that business, I was very young. And so I don't think I, I saw the leap into, oh, I could be a financial advisor myself at that stage. But I wanted to do the qualifications. I was hungry to learn more. And then it got to the stage, I think, where three years later, I wasn't being put into a training advisor position and then looked for employment elsewhere. And actually then I switched across to the provider side. So I went from working within the financial advice sector to the product providers. And I spent a good number of years on that side of the fence. So people listening may not understand what that is, but every financial advisor has a suite of, of products that they can recommend to their clients. And I worked within sort of the pensions and the investments division and my clients would be financial advisors. So I spent many years wandering around the streets of London, knocking on doors of financial advisor firms and really understanding their business. So I've lived through retail distribution review. I've lived through everybody going onto a platform. So the way financial advice businesses run now are very different to when they when I was 18 years old. Um, but having been in the profession and helped financial advisors with their strategies over the years, I've got a really good understanding of the profession. Being a young female entering financial services those years ago, was it difficult to be female and to be picked up as somebody who could potentially be a financial planner? Do you feel like you were overlooked in those situations? Because the profession itself hasn't really got loads of females in it. I think 16% of the financial planning profession, for example, are female. Did you feel like you were overlooked for opportunities? Were they the same opportunities there for you as a female as there were for men? It's difficult to say. Possibly that might have been the case. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about what I do now is exactly that point, Sam, is getting more, being a bit of a role model, being a face in the profession who is female and can attract more women into the profession because the wealth transfer in the UK is moving to the control of women up to at least 60% by 2025. And when you look at the makeup of the advisor talent pool, it's, as you say, 17% women, it's 20% women at SJP, 26% graduations in our academy, which is fantastic, but it takes a long time to really move the bar on the, on the whole partnership because of its scale. But one of the other things that I'm the most passionate about is being that role model. And I don't think I saw any role models at that time in my career. It was many years ago now, so I didn't really see that at that time in my career. Have I been overlooked at certain points in my career? Absolutely. Was it always for financial advisor roles? No, because I've not really gone for financial advisor roles before, but definitely had that um, male-dominated profession, been overlooked for opportunities, definitely. It's interesting as well. I think there's about 9,000 power planners in the UK and predominantly they're female. So when we look at the kind of increase in female advisors one of the most obvious places to look would be power planning i know power planning is a career within its own right however there are lots of people sitting in administration power planner roles that are female that do want to become financial planners but they are being overlooked for that role development in firms that perhaps don't invest in them mm. and um it's just an interesting subject for me. I, I want to attract more women to the financial profession. You do as well. And it was interesting what you said about women in leadership positions. The more women that we have in leadership positions within financial planning, standing up and talking about what a fantastic career in uh, financial planning is, like you with your academy, it's only going to attract more women into the profession. And what I see a lot of on social media is that when women do become financial planners, they're more inclined to get on social media and start to influence other women to look after their finances. And of course, women follow them. They then start thinking, well, hang on, what do you do for a job? And then they're interested in joining. And you being at the forefront of that at the academy, I think is fantastic. Thank you. So what's really interesting is that when you moved into that product provider business development role, you were able to see how other financial planning firms operate. But also what the business development role did for you was to expose you to relationship building 
and sales skills, essentially, you know, the ability to actually sell your services and at the time your products. What part do you think that played in your career, understanding and learning the importance of building relationships and those vital sales skills as well? Absolutely. I think at the time I didn't think about it too much, but as I developed in the roles and I can remember my first, you know, client facing role and being terrified of having that first ever meeting with a financial advice business and the owner of the business as well. And then moving into presenting to large rooms of people. And so I've built my skill set over time. And the more I got into the sales aspect of the role, the more fascinated I was and I wanted to know what motivates people's decisions. And so I've done lots of qualifications and research and things that I think a lot of corporates do, like Insights or Myers-Briggs, those things absolutely fascinated me. And then that's led me to do my own qualifications in neurolinguistic programming and performance coaching. So that that has a big influence on my career choices. And I think when I was a recruiter for SJP, it really suited my skill set because I was out there meeting people and that's what lights me up. It's that connection with people. And now I'm in the marketing world. I spent a little bit of time, I guess, behind the scenes. And funnily enough, there's now opportunities where I'm the podcast host. I'm meeting people again. I'm the partnerships, head of the partnerships. Oh, I'm meeting people again. So those strengths really do serve me well. Yeah, I absolutely love that as well. Going out and meeting people face to face, sitting down, finding out what their motivators are, finding out what their pain points are and then offering solutions to them. Nothing feels better than building that deep connection. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Getting people into this profession who love building relationships and building those deeper connections. That's really good to hear, G. What we're seeing a lot of, pretty much pushed by social media, is this culture of entrepreneurialism. Everybody really seems to want to run their own business these, these, these days. And I suppose like when you look at technology, the advancements of it and how you can run a business with less staff than ever and the ability to build a profile on you know, social media like Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, you can see why people are driven towards running their own businesses. Not to mention the, the work-life balance that eventually can be achieved once you've reached the point of actually earning that work-life balance. There's a lot of work that goes into being an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about your own personal journey around being an entrepreneur. It is an interesting one. And I think it's it's good to understand what were the motivations behind the initial decision. And I think you're right. There are lots of influences. There's lots of places where we see people being successful. It's very visual on social media now. And actually, you can get access to people who you look up to and respect and might be offering services for coaching, et cetera. And I think I kind of found myself in that space, that online entrepreneurial space. And I'd done my, I did another qualification actually as a health coach studying nutrition and dietary theories. And I found myself in that online world. And there was a, a lady I was following, I did her course, Marie Folio, B-School. So she has a course for you know, or creating online businesses or creating a presence online. And that's where it started, really. I think once I got into that world and I was aware of those kind of influential figures and people, the more I wanted to learn. But I wasn't too sure exactly what I wanted to do. So I found myself where I, following a redundancy, I had a payout of some money. I was personally in, in quite a strong position. I had a had my own home, but interest rates were really super low and my mortgage was a tiny amount per month, which gave me the freedom to, to go off and do a bit of traveling and maybe a bit of soul searching. So I've been in the profession for, I don't know, some 10, 15 years at that point and went off and did some traveling. And I found myself living in Los Angeles for a few months and then in Sydney for a few months. And both of those places, if you were to go and land there right now, they're both very health and fitness focused places and I'd just come out of working in financial services probably feeling a bit unfit and a bit unhealthy at the time so I threw myself into the nutrition I was learning nutrition um, yoga juicing just getting myself fit and healthy so when I came back from that trip I was so inspired I'd been in this kind of online world I've been learning all these new skills I was like right now's the time to implement it it's kind of now or never but before I made that decision interestingly um, I knew I had to kind of leave some doors open back to my financial planning, my financial services world. So at the same time as launching my juice business, I was studying my RO exams. I was kind of had a foot in two camps, if that makes sense. But my experience of living in Los Angeles and living in Sydney and having all that health culture around me, it really was before the juice culture took off in the UK and I wanted to launch my own juice business so I imported a juicer from the states a cold pressed Norwalk juicer and started making these juices and I had a company called Juice Philosophy made cold pressed juices and delivered juice cleanses 
And you know what? I absolutely loved it. But your comment around it's really hard work. Um, this was a, I call it a micro business because it was just me. I did everything. I did the website. I did the marketing. I made the juices myself. I delivered the juices myself. I interacted with the people on their doorstep as I handed them the juice. And what that meant was I actually got repeat customers because it was me and I was so passionate about it. So yeah, it was a, it was a great time. And it was actually when I met my husband. So I was in this entrepreneurial phase of life where I was loving life. But it takes time to build momentum and it takes time to build a consistent stream of income, I think, no matter what business you try and launch. If you're starting from zero, you can't expect to suddenly overnight have the earnings that you had, you know, from your previous role. And I was earning well in my previous role in financial services. So I was in a phase of life where I was comfortable because my outgoings were minimal. I was earning money, but it wasn't anywhere near as much as what I used to earn. I then met my husband, who was also an entrepreneur at the time. He wasn't a financial advisor when I met him. He was actually a film producer. Um, and I was a bit older than him. So we had some, we, when, when things started going well, we had some decisions to make. Um, and I think I got my business to the point, point of, you know, a five figure turnover, not a six figure turnover. So in my mind, I also wanted it to be earning much more money for me. But I, I had some pivots in that business. I was like, do I, do I grow this cold press juice business and have, you know, cold deliveries? Or do I create an online version of this so people can make their own juices at home? So I pivot, pivoted, created an online course and started marketing that instead. And that is actually where I started earning less money. I thought it would be more impactful, sell more at a lower price. But actually the online marketing was the challenge there. And you kept having to invest more money in online marketing. It was Facebook marketing was the thing at the time. And you can just burn money. So I was feeling the pressure of that. And then my husband and I were at a position where the relationship was going well. We were at an age where some decisions need to be made. And I was lucky enough to have left the door open in financial services and be able to walk into a job where I could earn that money again. And he actually made the decision then to retrain to become a financial advisor. So I effectively supported it through that, that period where he was retraining. And seven years later, here we are, or 10 years later, here we are. And it's worked, that's worked out really well as a decision. Fantastic. What was your best-selling juice? <laughs> it was a cleanse. It was a package. So you got all of them. But they I named them after things in Los Angeles. So I had one that was called Muscle Beach. Um, I had one that was called Red Carpet. I had one that was called A-List and all sorts of fun names like that. It was cool. Oh, fantastic. It's very interesting to say about the marketing side of it. You know, I... I, the last three years, I've been promoting Financial Planner Life on social media. LinkedIn's like my platform. And I feel like we try to be a master of every single social media platform out there. When in reality, you need to pick one where your clients actually live or your target customers actually live. But when it comes to juicing, it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. It's every single walk of life. So you're kind of probably TikTok, or it wasn't around then. But it wasn't around then, no. <laughs> TikTok, now it'd be TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, which one do I use? YouTube. Yeah. And it becomes incredibly overwhelming. And what I do see a lot is that people tend to invest quite heavily in the marketing and social side, especially when they set up their business on their own. But it can take your time. It can kill your time. And if you're not used to doing it and you don't have a realistic expectation about what actually posting content does in respect of driving content to you, especially when it's organic, you can waste a huge amount of time marketing yourself and getting absolutely no return from customers. So marketing and social marketing has to go hand in hand with what you were doing as well, which was door knocking, going out and physically meeting people, building relationships with them and trying to get them to buy into you so you get repeat business face to face. Did you find that you were getting more business through face to face contact than you were online? A hundred percent. So as I say, I'd, I'd built the business, the, the physical juice product and built those face-to-face -face relationships through the deliveries because I was delivering them myself. They opened the door, they're excited to receive it. They're texting me what their results were at the end. They're really happy, they're off on holiday, they're going to a wedding, they wanted to lose those few pounds for it. And they had great results, so they were happy. And they would tell their friends and I'd get more business. And then the other in-person interactions I had were through local yoga studios. I went in their newsletter, I was there in the classes, people could come and speak to me. So it's just thinking, well, how can I reach, like you said, my audience? Where are they? Where do they go? and just find yourself in those places. I tend to gravitate now towards partnerships. So can I make a part, can I have a partnership relationship with somebody who has an audience that I want to talk to? Can I leverage off the back of their brand? Can we work in partnership in some way to do something together where we're both talking to the same audience and we both will benefit from it? I say that a lot to financial planners is look, you know, you could be a B to C, you could go out and try and 
generate marketing and everything that's directed to the consumer, the client. But in reality, they want to watch and consume your content for free. They want to get information for free. You want to be marketing and targeting business to business. So like in the world of financial planning, isn't it? You know, referrals is everything. Yeah. So if you're out there marketing to say a hundred companies or targeting a hundred companies with content, maybe it's accountancy firms or solicitor firms or whatever niche where you know the type of client it is you're after and start creating content directed at them, but also reaching out to them, knocking on their door virtually. It could just be, you know, making the decision to send 10 new LinkedIn messages a day commenting on five posts every single day, making 15 connections every day. It's that consistency of the outreach that benefits the marketing strategy as well, where you're going to get results. But be smart about it. Pick the people where you know where your clients live and where they already have a need. So it's like brilliant, you know, financial planners, it's like, well, go and speak to accountants and solicitors. You already know they're there because they've probably got some kind of financial need. And explain to the accountant or solicitor exactly how you can help their clients. Maybe deliver a financial plan to the accountant. Wow them with your ability of cash flow forecasting and all those typical types of things. It doesn't need to be difficult. Don't start from scratch. Be strategic about it. But you have to have that outreach. And I love the fact that you, when you were entrepreneurial, you were knocking on those doors as well as not just relying on the marketing. Because as you said... You can hemorrhage money left, right and center if you start paying for advertising on Facebook and all of that because it's a very, very crowded space. And we tend to go through as consumers and scroll. And when an advert comes up, unless it doesn't look like an advert, you're like, advert, advert. And each one of those you're paying for. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about in financial advice, we call them professional connections as a term of phrase internally. Um, And they typically are those traditional unsolicited accountants because they have a book of clients that you very likely can help. But actually, when people come through the academy, 60% of them come from non-financial services backgrounds. So often we'll help them un- like carve out a niche in what their background was. So if somebody joins us from the military or from sports, actually, you can carve professional relationships, business-to-business relationships within the background that you've come from. So it doesn't have to be that very much corporate look, solicitors, accountants, that, that might sound terrifying to somebody. You can build those relationships with what lights you up. So for me, it was at the time yoga studios, and that's where I went and spent my time. Exactly that. Develop a niche that's of really in- of a real interest to you. Can you deliver? We talk about financial planning, aren't we? Right? Could you deliver financial planning to the niche audience that you know something about? Yeah. So perhaps you were a doctor. And you transition over to financial planning. Therefore, you know the stresses and the strains that people who work within the NHS are under and how how time poor they are. But you also know how to get in front of them and when to get in front of them and how to communicate with them. So why not build content strategy around that and target those individuals, target the hospitals and actually start to build relationships that way. I had some very interesting people on my podcast where somebody had come from somewhere like Amazon. So he knows all the Amazon e-commerce Uh, stores so he knows which ones are doing really well which ones aren't now his job was to help them sell more so now he's stepped across into financial planning he knows the people who are running the best stores so he's approaching them with tips about e-commerce but at the same time oh guess what i'm the financial planner to the e-commerce store world i mean a really interesting guy as well really into gaming gaming's like massive you know, professional gamers out yeah, there earning absolutely. millions of pounds. Yeah, absolutely. So he's becoming the financial planner to the gaming community. I love that. So just when you think about how can I build professional relationships and how can I be entrepreneurial, which is what we're talking about here, isn't it? It's like, think a little bit outside the box. It doesn't just have to be accountants and solicitors in those traditional routes. There are so many areas. The tech industry. Yeah. God, there's some big earners in the tech industry. Yeah. And um, Farming. Uh, just bumped into a guy in the, in the lift out there on our way down to the studio today who came through the academy program and his family are in the farming profession and he's got that niche his website looks very farm-like and he speaks their language and I think like you mentioned people skills sales skills and people often shy away from the word sales Mm -hmm. but ultimately it is about the connection you have with somebody it's no like trust where are those people that already know like and trust me or who sees me frequently and just starting there is the most sensible place Absolutely. And when you're building that audience on your social media, don't try and uh, connect with everybody. Pick a a specific area of the types of people that you want them to see you on a regular basis. Create content that is directed at them and put it out there on a regular basis. But as we said, most importantly, reach out and actually talk to them physically. Book them in for meetings. One of the best tips I'll give anybody is use Calendly. 
I use Calendly. It, Calendly is fantastic, isn't it, in respect of booking and interviews. It takes away the back and forth of interview, you know, of the uh, emailing back and forth, texting back and forth. You just go, here's my link, book it into the diary. God, the amount of meetings that I get in my diary, I'm not very good at going back and forth with people. I no. lose interest very, very quickly. Yes. So really a good top tip there. And that's absolutely elevated my business development. I love that. And I that Calendly was something I used within my coaching. So I had a, a nutrition sort of coaching business alongside the uh, online courses. And online tech and tools was something that I had to lean into as an entrepreneur. I didn't have, you know, a FTSE 100 company with Salesforce. I had to sort of build my own CRM. I had to have, use my own systems and strategies. And Calendly was something I used to use. And that's something I've brought with me into SJP. As soon as I joined as a recruitment manager, I just paid for my own subscription with Calendly and I was just booking in all my one-to-one meetings through Calendly and it does, it just saves time. And it was funny when I first joined, it was five years ago now when I first joined, um, one of our my colleagues was saying, do the people you're sending the meetings to, do they know how to use Calendly? And I'm like, well, yeah, because I've been sending it to them to book in a, a consultation on their health. So of course I know they can use Calendly. So it's just, it just goes to show, I think, I think perceptions have changed a lot in five years because we've had COVID between then and now and everybody can use online tools. But I think investing in what, what makes your life easy is super important too. Another thing I picked up on is that you initially had guidance from a coach, from an expert. How important was that in your journey into setting up your juicing business instead of doing it on your own, on your own thinking? I knew I needed help and support more actually for the marketing side of my business. Um, That was the world that interested me and I was fascinated with and I wanted to learn more about. And interestingly now when I look back in retrospect, a lot of that was about me putting myself out there on social media, as you do really, really well, Sam, and and as I'm now confident enough to do for myself. But if I go back to that moment in my life, I I think I was a bit unconfident and I didn't do it as well as I should have. And so I learned some really great stuff from having coaches and mentors, but I didn't implement the learning because I was too shy and I was too scared. So I think in retrospect, having Having a a blueprint to follow, having an expert who's done this before telling you what to do is really important, but you also really need to be brave and bold. You need to get outside your comfort zone and just shine. You're absolutely right. Be consistent. Get out there and do it. I'll tell you what, I said this to somebody somebody yesterday. Um, My motto at the moment, is it 80%? Is it 80% good enough? Well, if it is, let's get cracking. I love that. And also as well, right, you put some content out there. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, G, right now. Do you remember the last piece of content that you watched on social media the last time you were on social media? Can you remember specifically what that person said, what they looked like if they were nervous? Yeah, I wouldn't know if they were nervous. That wouldn't cross my mind. No, you don't have a clue, right? People forget so quickly. They switch, 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 switch. So don't dwell upon, oh, I wonder what they think of me. Because that's an internal fear of what others think. You're probably going to get six seconds of their... Their, their vision, their time anyway, so. Just be yourself. Yeah. And that's what people love, authenticity. And that's all about building that personal brand. You have to be yourself. If you're trying to be something for somebody else, you'll never feel confident. Yeah. And that's how I built the confidence to go out on social media. I remember there was a video I put out on LinkedIn years ago. I had the phone up and I was talking away about women in financial advice and I was shaking and I had to re-record it and it was terrible lighting and I was in my kitchen. And I just thought, good God, what am I doing? But I look back on that now and how far I've come is amazing. So it's consistency, being brave, getting stuck in. Is it 80%? Get it out there. I love that. And actually, Sam, you're an inspiration to me with podcasting. So the switch is relatively new. I think this might be sort of in the the first 10 episodes or so. I'm new to podcasting. I'm new to hosting podcasts. And I look at you, I look at, you know, the great Stephen Bartlett's of the world and so many amazing podcasts that I'm a fan of. And I compare myself and I beat myself up. But then I have to remind myself, well, I've only done this less than 10 times. So if you fast forward a year from now and I've done, I don't know how many episodes, things will look different. And I'll be really proud of that. And I won't worry about what the first episode looked like or sounded like. Like you said, it's good enough. Let's get it out there and continue. Progress, not perfection. Love that. So we're often driven by our intrinsic values and to find meaningful work that gives us purpose. What gives you purpose? What's your intrinsic values and how does that translate into the world of business for you? I think mine are are really clear. And actually, when I look back over my career choices and the things I've enjoyed the most over my career to date, it's always had an element of helping other people. Every single role that I've had that I've enjoyed, 
be it the business development role, helping people to be efficient in their businesses, going with an online platform, be it in uh, my banking role actually was conduct delivery, helping the bank be better, you know, it had a, had a purpose. And then my entrepreneurial business was help people feel good about themselves, help people get healthy, get fit. And now I'm at SJP, I, you know, I actually, I, I skipped over the reason why I went down the entrepreneurial path in the first place. So there were, there are a couple of reasons behind it. One is my dad's an entrepreneur, so I've always seen and been around him, obviously my whole life. And he's so passionate about what he does. That just sort of inspired me to think, okay, I'd like to work for myself one day and, and find what that passion is for me. And the second reason behind it was the flexibility, the, the autonomy that that provides. Although saying that, Sam, you alluded to the fact that it's harder work when you work for yourself than it is working for somebody else. It's just different. So actually, you don't mind putting the hours in because it is for you and it is your business. And I think I, I liked that. So I got my work ethic from my dad. I've seen him work extremely hard over the years, and that's definitely rubbed off. But the other reason behind wanting to work for myself was that autonomy. Um, I was in my early 30s at the time and I was hoping to meet somebody and have a family one day. And coming from the corporate world, it was pre-COVID, so none of this uh, virtual working was ever uh, relevant then. And I just couldn't imagine myself being able to balance the career with you know, the school run or whatever else it was that might be in my future. And that was really behind why I wanted to do the juice business. So now my motivation or my value set is helping other people to achieve what I originally wanted from setting up my own business. So I'm attracting people to come into St. James's Place, retrain to be a, a financial advisor, and often they're starting their own businesses or they're, they're becoming uh, an advisor within a practice, but the role itself has a high degree of autonomy. You choose when you have a client meeting. You choose when you do your admin. So you could do your admin once the kids have gone to bed at night and you could do your client meetings in the day between the school hours, as an example. And so for me, it's that it's that intrinsic value of helping people to achieve something that's like burning inside them. So whether that's lose weight or have my own business so I can fit that around my family, that's what drives me. And then secondly to that, more recently is, we've already discussed it, is getting more women into the profession. I'm really passionate about that. Why are you so passionate about getting women into the profession? I think you touched on it earlier, to be honest, Sam. And it wasn't something I thought about before we met today. Um, the, possibly the challenges I've had and not wanting others to go through those challenges. Um, but also just, it just doesn't make sense to have that many um, men as financial advisors. The, the control of wealth is moving to the, to the control of women. We need to accurately reflect who our client base is, not just in gender, in many other ways as well. And so the more different types of people we can attract to the profession, the better. And I just feel like you have to continually work on that. You can't just, we can't just say to ourselves, we want to attract women. Oh, we'll do one thing about that and then forget about it. It has to be a consistent movement, if you like. I think the world of financial planning and financial advice is very different based on who is delivering it and who the audience actually is. Women date very differently to men. Men date very differently to women. Great example. You know, women look at financial investment different to the way men look really at financial investment. You know, men are quite bullish. Women tend to be more conservative and need to understand a little bit more about it. So how can a guy sit there, really, and deliver financial planning to a female... They can, don't get me wrong, they can. They can and they do. <laughs> yeah, they can and they do. But there needs to be choice here and there needs to be a connection, a deeper connection between female to female. I think also, you look at things like marriage breakdown, right? Divorce, etc. Women want to talk to another woman about what's going on in their situation. It's difficult if a woman's gone through a, maybe they're in a vulnerable situation, right? And they don't want to sit down with a man and explain to a man what they're going through. They want yeah. to explain it to, to a woman. And there's loads of things that women go through in their lives. You look at things like the menopause, for example, right? A man can't sit there and really understand where a woman is within their life cycle. I'm learning all about this, by the way, <laughs> because my wife's doing this course on um, the menopause. Wow, that's brilliant. And she does this thing called the red tent down in Newquay. And... It's been fascinating for me to learn about what women go through during their menopause. And my understanding of the cycle now is completely different to what I think we've traditionally been passed down male to male. Yeah. And it's a completely different um, vibe and um, 
It's yeah. giving me a different vibe and a different understanding of what women go through. Now, I can understand it. Does that mean that I can relate and empathise with a woman? No, I can't. And I think that's where women have a place within financial planning because, as we said earlier, we're all very, very different, right? Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to put too much of a women only get advice from women, men only get advice from men. Of course, women can advise men and vice versa. But I think women make great financial advisors because they come with a lot of the skills that are required to be good financial advisors naturally. And I think men that come and train, they might be better at the technical side of things and then they have to sort of learn the interpersonal skills. Whereas women come with the interpersonal skills in bucket loads and then they learn the tech side, just speaking very generically there. So, you know, being a good people person, having a great personal network, building long-term relationships, those are all fundamental things that make financial advisors successful. And so just getting those messages out there, getting the message to the right people from the right person makes a big difference because it's, it's all very well a, a male voice out there telling women they should become financial advisors. But I think it's far more impactful coming from a woman. Through your academy then, have you noticed a different training need? And if you put women and men up against each other, do women go through the academy differently to men going through the academy? Is there a different type of training need and delivery? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not close enough to it. But we have a whole team of academy development managers who are a mixture of men and women, obviously. And so everybody should have access to somebody that can help them, whatever their concern might be. So it might be uh, a pastoral concern rather than a, you know, a course concern. And also we've got such an array of different learning methods now through technology. So the use of uh, online platforms for learning. So you can listen to things, you could watch videos as well as reading. The traditional way was here's a doorstep book, go and read that and go and sit the exam. I and mean, that's how I did my exams. So I think we've got lots of different learning styles, but also accessibility to that training at any time of day. So people can flex it around what else is going on in their life. So I think that's important too. Fabulous. So your dad was an entrepreneur then. What did he do? He still does. He has not stopped working, Sam. That's how much he loves it. <laughs> He's going to be 78 in November. Wow. Um, so my dad manufactures cricket balls. Wow, fantastic. Well, he makes physically makes the cricket balls. He makes the cricket balls, Duke's balls that they use in the test matches. Very cool. Amazing. And you obviously didn't make, you know, the balls that he made in the very, very beginning aren't weren't used in test, test matches at the very, very beginning, right? This is it. So my dad is often interviewed when there's a test match going on because the ball's always a topic of conversation. So sometimes there'll be a radio van outside his house and he's being interviewed on the radio. Sometimes he's interviewed on TV. Um, and he travels the world still with his cricket balls. So they use different surfaces on these balls in different conditions. So you can imagine in Australia, it's slightly drier conditions than it is here in the UK, for example. And when people are interviewing him, I think there's always that impression of, you know, it's an it's it's a new oh this ball's fantastic. It's been around for X number of years, but like you say, actually there were many many years behind the scenes to get to that point. And I think for me, that's why he's such a shining example of what success looks like behind the scenes. And as you've already alluded to a few times, it's the consistency of effort, it's the drive and determination, the passion for what you're doing. Otherwise, it's too hard. And for the, for my dad, providing the very best the very best he can possibly deliver, that's what's important to him. So I think if you were to compare that to financial planning, becoming chartered might be an example of that. How can I get to the very top of my game and deliver the very best service I can possibly give? And my dad has consistently done that with the cricket ball. And he'll get, you know, there's a, there's a competitor ball from another brand that often gets spoken about. And he actually doesn't worry too much about it. Yes, he needs to worry about it because he doesn't get all of the contracts. You can't have 100% of a market. But ultimately, he knows the quality of his ball is completely different to that ball. It's, complete, it's made completely differently. It's a hand-stitched ball. It's not a, a factory-manufactured ball. So I think if you stay really focused on what it is you're doing, you're really committed to doing the very best you can possibly do, and you're consistent at that, success comes. But it's not overnight, even if it appears that way. I love that you had an entrepreneurial father. I'm entrepreneurial. I've got a daughter. She's seven years old, Isabella. And I hope she watches my journey. And I try to talk to her all the time about the ups and downs of my life when it comes to work. And that I'm not working for somebody else, that I'm doing it myself. So I'm constantly trying to educate her about the reasons why I'm able to go and pick her up from school whenever I want. 
you know, where I can take an afternoon off if it's summer holidays or whatever and we go and do something or a week off. In fact, next year I'm planning six weeks off during a six weeks holiday so me and her can start traveling every year. So every year we're going to do six weeks travel. Now, I couldn't do that if I was employed. I might have been done if I'm lucky enough, but in reality I probably couldn't do that. I couldn't construct that and make that happen. So I want her to understand that when you have that flexibility and freedom, when you do truly become an entrepreneur and you work hard for it because – Five years, well, longer than that, G, right? I've been doing 15 years I've been running my own business. Yeah. It's only now in Some my 40s freedoms are that available. I'm reaping the benefits. Yeah. And even then it's a fine line because if I want to grow and build the business, it's going to take more of my time. So I have to relieve some of the extra work and pressure that I've got and give it to somebody else to do. You mentioned you're a bit of a control freak as well. So that's hard, right? It's your baby. I've had to learn to let go of the need for control and trust other people around the work that they're doing, which goes back to what I said earlier, progress, not perfection. And is it 80% there? Because it would cripple me moving forward because I was a perfectionist. And now I let go of this idea of perfectionism. I lower the bar of the high jump. Instead of trying to do the world record, I'll lower it down a little bit and start jumping over a little bit and let the thing progress through. And I think in entrepreneurialism, I think in any kind of business, you have to be curious. You have to go forward. You have to do a bit of market research all the time. Everything is forever evolving. You don't just, great analogy, right? In financial planning, brilliant. I got my level four qualifications. I'm a financial planner. No, you're not a financial planner. You've just got the qualifications and you're just starting your journey. You need the practical skills, the soft skills, and that comes from experience. And you need guidance around that, don't you? You need somebody that can kind of show you the path to success so you get there quicker. Yes, go and do some failings. Yes, go and fail. And you are going to fail and find it hard. But having somebody in your corner that can coach, guide, and sort of with a machete through the jungle, cut down all the things to give you a nice clear-cut pathway to help you along your way is invaluable. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So let's go back to your current role at SJP then. Just tell us a little bit about what you're doing right here, right now at SJP. I work within the partnership recruitment marketing division with a with a focus on the academy. So SJP can recruit from three talent pools, if you like. One is the existing financial advisor pool. One are people who already have qualifications, but they've never given advice. I would be an example of somebody that falls into that category. And then finally, people that are new to advising haven't you know just even thought about being a financial advisor before and we can train them with the qualifications and with the skills too and so my primary focus is that last group of people so casting the net wide telling lots of people about the opportunity because I genuinely personally think it's a brilliant opportunity for all the reasons we've discussed today so it gives you a job with purpose it gives you a job with autonomy it gives you a job with flexibility and just building relationships with people. So for me, you know, a dream job, that sounds like a dream job to me. And my husband is one and he thinks it's a dream job. So I know that it's a dream job. So yeah, that's my current role. And at the moment, I'm casting that far and wide with things like this, with the podcast and also strategic relationships. So with yourself, Sam, and other businesses. So how can I find a group of people who might be already thinking of a career change for one reason or another? And I go and form business relationships with those companies, networks, for example, So one of them is Women Returners Professional Network, and they have an audience of women who have had a career break for one reason or another. It could be caring for children. It could be caring for elderly relatives. It could be relocation. It could be any reason. It doesn't have to be family and caring, but they have an audience of people already looking to get back into the workplace. So that's fantastic for SJP. So we go out there and communicate with their audience in a bespoke way for them. So if I'm doing an event for them, I'll have a a female lineup, if you like. I'll have one academy graduate who started their own business and one academy graduate who's an advisor within a business, just to give a real clarity on those two options that are available. And then another example of an affinity partner might be ex-professional sports people. So people tend to retire quite young if they're a professional sports person and then that age is ticking up a little bit because I think age is kind of getting a bit less of a, a reason to retire from sport now. But typically maybe in their 40s, some sports in their 30s, they may not have made quite enough money to last the rest of their life. So they're looking for a second career. So I look after those relationships, which I love. Interesting then. You've seen a mixed bag really of all different people from all different backgrounds. What background do you think is the most successful when it's a transition into becoming a financial planner? If I knew that, I'd spend all my time there, Sam. (laughs) But people are people. 
everybody's different and that's the beauty of the opportunity because their client base will be different to each other's and actually I was at an event once where two ladies turned up um, it was pre-covid it was an in-person event and they were sat next to each other chatting away and they were laughing and I thought oh hi you know who are you uh, what, what's a funny kind of thing and they said we're next door neighbors we didn't know each other were coming and then they started to get really scared thinking how can we both start up a financial advice business we live next door to each other we must know all the same people and then when you drill down into that actually how many people do you know in common it's probably the people in your street maybe a couple of people if your kids go to the same school but otherwise your personal networks are vastly different so it's just a, an example of people are different their personal networks are different therefore their clients are going to be different so it doesn't matter who you are and what your background is. There isn't one uh, career background that is more successful than another. And we've got 60% of people coming from non-financial services backgrounds. And the the range of backgrounds, Sam, is quite incredible. So we've had, as I say, well, a dairy farmer. The guy I was speaking about earlier wasn't a farmer himself. His family are farmers, but we have had a farmer come through um, all the way to somebody in financial services. So the range is is vast. Yeah, I think people don't often think about their network when they're thinking about going into financial planning. And I think sitting down with somebody and digging deep around who they know, not just like personal friends and family, that's a great way to develop some, you know, fantastic clients. But some people feel uncomfortable about approaching friends and family, right? So I think when you actually sit, I do, I do it with people when they come to me and I say, yeah, I'd love to be a financial planner, but I'm not quite confident about going out and winning new business. And when you sit down with a piece of paper and say, right, well, let's look at some advocate relationships that you have in your life. Life. Let's look at the, all areas of your life. Are you part of any clubs? You know, let's look at the where you currently work at the moment. Let's look at the types of clients you're currently servicing. So if you're an accountant or a solicitor or you're a marketing manager, more than likely you've probably got some pretty senior people in companies that you can reach out to and say, look, can I come on in and deliver a financial well-being proposition to your staff or something like that? It could be the cricket club. Do you know lots of people in the cricket club? The golf club. And it's a very traditional kind of route, but it could be the yoga. It could be anything, couldn't it? Absolutely. And it's like, where can I lean into those networks to develop relationships? And we've already touched on this. And this is why we're here today. There's partnerships. There's that piggyback marketing that we can do as well. Is there anybody you know that's doing really well on social media within their own field? Could I do something with them to be able to create um, content that's relevant to their audience? One of the most interesting ones for me is I think we've touched on it, well-being. Mm. It's massive, right? Huge. There's loads of people out there talking about well-being, whether it's mental health or physical health or nutrition. So can I create content that's relevant to that person promoting physical health? So I've got an academy coming out soon, right? Within my academy, I'm going to have a yoga teacher teaching yoga and meditation. I'm not in there flat out doing it. They're just in there creating some courses that are relevant to the people that are in my in my community to help keep them calm and keep them focused. I've got a friend who's got a really big following in, in the fitness world and he's got something called the Alchemy of Aging. And he works with me to make sure as I get older, I'm physically and mentally fit, right? So I'm like, well, it works for me. So I may as well bring him into my community as well. So therefore he piggybacks off of mine, I piggyback off of his. And it becomes less about hyper-focusing on just financial planning and more about how can I make this boom? How can I get my message out there to as many people as I possibly can? And yeah. I do think people need to get a piece of paper and be a bit creative around their networks and how they can uh, develop new business. And when you've got these people side by side, instantly they think, oh God, you know, she's probably doing the same people that I do. So they go into this fear bubble and get nowhere with it. They live in the fear bubble and don't step outside of it. But it takes people like you when you sit down with people when they come into the academy to say, look, let's look at a business plan. Let's yeah. explore what it's like to go out and win clients. And let's think outside of the box. Yeah. Part of the process is do let's do a network analysis. So let's think about all of those things you've just said. So what does your life look like? What clubs do I belong to? What jobs have I had before? And actually, if those two people were to sit next to each other while doing the exercise, it would be a real visual on how different their group of people that they know are. But I love your comment on, on well-being. So one recruit I can think of, um, Stephanie, hello, Stephanie, if you're listening. She had a yoga Pilates studio before she joined and she got into that through actually a, a horse riding accident. So she needed to heal herself and the nearest Pilates studio was a, quite a long drive away. So she went there because she needed to, to heal herself. But then she opened up her own studio in her area because there wasn't, there wasn't access to one. And then she was treating people, obviously, coming through her studio. They all had various stresses and strains in life. And then she joined the dots because often the theme of those stresses and strains was linked to finances. 
So now she has her own practice. She's still actively marketing in that audience because she knows those people are coming in with those stresses and strains of life and actually it might be linked to something personal or something financial which she can now help them with too and I think back from when I was running my juice business I would partner with a local gym I'd sell my juices in a little tiny fridge at the reception but I would also go and do talks on a Wednesday night and they were about nutrition but there's no reason why well-being as a topic couldn't have been financial as well on the side so I, I just think you're right I think those things are merging wellness and well-being is, is often linked to financial so the possibilities are endless and I also think as well like you know you can have all the money in the world but you could st- still be financially you know, your financial well-being could still be not great all right you could still have deep down trauma that's associated to money you have a scarcity mindset you know it's, it's often i speak to financial planners and they'll say like i sit down with people in their 60s and they still don't think they've got enough money to to, to retire and when i sit there and do a clash for cash flow forecast with them and i break it down and they see in black and white that they have enough it's like this weight off their shoulder is lifted Absolutely. and this is why i love financial planning so i'm all about purpose i'm exactly the same as you i love helping people I and mean, when i think i can i help that person sat in front of me how can i collectively help society i genuinely believe good financial planning is helping society i think money plays a massive part in our misery and i think our relationship with money does that as well so as a financial planner it's about also look yeah we're going to sell you some not sell you we're going to recommend some products that are going to offer you investment that should hopefully give you an income for the rest of your life but what can we do for you right now how can we ease some of those money beliefs that you have? How can we you know, ease some of those money fears that you have? And often that gets overlooked within the financial planning job, the mm. job role. It's a well-being proposition. And if you think about it that way, yeah. and every person you're going to sit down and help, what's the knock-on effect that's going to have to that person, their partner, their family, their overall well-being? And I love that. And it's like, that's the part I see good financial planning playing is financial well-being. And that's why I love the profession so much. And that's why I want it to grow. Because I've gone through like financial coaching courses. And I'm so surprised with the money beliefs and the money mindset that I had and how much it was affecting my life. I was constantly anxious and worried about it. Even if I had enough, why was I in that scarcity mindset? Yeah. I didn't even understand what a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset was. You just had it. Yeah, I you just, had the scarcity one. I just had it. Yeah. And then when you realize, oh, wow, if I'm thinking that way about money, I must be thinking about it in other things in my life, maybe my business, maybe my relationships. And bang on, that happened. As soon as I developed what a scarcity mindset was around money and abundance mindset, I went straight into abundance. There's enough of everything out there for me for the rest of my life. And I feel great about it. And I think when people actually experience that at whatever stage of their life, it's mind changing. Absolutely. And if we come back to those two people sitting next to each other worrying about are there enough clients in our town or our street or our village or whatever it might be, um, we we perceive there to be a shortfall of 50,000 financial advisors in the UK right now. So but that's a great analogy. There's enough in the world for me to be successful and have a great life. There's enough for everybody. So it's just having that open mindset and thinking, yeah, I just need to do the things to make myself the best I can be. The rest will follow. 95% of the population don't fit the mould or the fee structure for traditional financial planning. So there's 95% of people out there as an audience, as a customer base that is untapped. And that is the opportunity for financial planning. The adoption of technology to reduce the cost involved of financial planning is going to open you up to 95% of the population that you can give financial planning to that don't fit the traditional mold of financial advice businesses out there at the moment. And that in itself is an opportunity. When you think about the impact robo-advice was meant to have and kill off all financial advisors, what we've realized is... Financial advisors and face-to-face advice is so, so vital. People want that face-to-face. And what we're seeing is a hybrid model now, aren't Yeah, we? definitely. And technology coming together with those advisors. And as you say, there is a shortfall of 50,000 advisors out there. Yeah. That, to me, is opportunity. And when we look at the 5.5 trillion that's meant to be transitioned across family to family, that great transition of wealth that's happening, yeah. another opportunity that any financial planner who's thinking about getting into the profession is like, come on. There's huge opportunity in this, get stuck into it. Absolutely. And I love what you said there. So it's sort of face-to-face advice tech enabled. I love nothing more than my app. I can log in. I can see what my investments are doing. I can see how they're performing. And if I was concerned, I can ring my 
my SJP advisor. Um, I've got two advisors. One is my husband and one is SJP. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> I have to be a client of SJP, right? So, G, the podcast is called The Switch. You've definitely had a switch up in your career. Any lessons along the way that you want to share today with our listeners? Yeah, I think we've we've talked about all of them throughout the conversation, but let's just summarize a few of the key learnings. And these learnings predominantly came from my entrepreneurial experience. So the first thing is learning from, from failure. And you mentioned it before. I think it is important to not be scared of failure. I think failure is actually the fastest way to learn. Um, and to be proud of the fact that you were brave enough to give it a go. You've now got the new learning. Let's try it again with that learning. You're more likely to have success. Another thing we already mentioned was learning from other experts in the field or having a coach or a mentor, somebody who has experience, who has wisdom that can guide you in the right direction. And I think when I launched my juice business, I had, as I say, I invested in a coach for a specific element of my business, which was online marketing, which I did need and I learned a lot from. But what was missing from that whole picture actually at the time was my own confidence and ability to just get the message out there in the way that I needed to. So I think what's nice about St. James's Place Academy is you've got that 360 help and support. So you've got a mentor who's somebody who's is a financial advisor. You can go and shadow their meetings. You can go and you know listen to them doing the job. And you've got a development manager who's there for all the pastoral side of things, as well as the, the learning and the development in the program. So I don't know many other opportunities that have that level of support. Um, and so for me, that's why I'm passionate about what I do. Another really important thing for people to think about if they're thinking of starting an entrepreneurial endeavor is their own personal cash flow. So making sure you have enough money to cover your essential outgoings for a period of time that you're comfortable with, because as we've already mentioned before, this this stuff doesn't happen overnight. It takes consistent effort and you need to know that you can pay the bills, have the roof over your head, care for your family, whatever that looks like for you. And you've got enough resources around you for that. One thing I wish I'd had that I didn't actually have was a blueprint. Mm. (laughs) If someone had said to me, I've set up a juice business before, have my blueprint I would have lapped that up. I would have done exactly what they did and I would have followed it to a T. And I think, again, that's something that the SJP Academy does provide. We've had over a thousand people go through the program before. We've got over 4,700 financial advisors in our partnership community. So there is a blueprint here. And I think people would be silly not to use that. If I had that, that would have been a fast track and I would have used it to a T. The opportunity. So, okay, when I launched my juice business, there was an opportunity because juicing wasn't huge in the UK and I could see it being huge in LA and I could see it being huge in Australia. And I was like, right, there is an opportunity. It's going to be huge in the UK. And we've just mentioned the opportunity here, 50,000 more financial advisors needed. So getting into something where you know there's a need for your product or a market for your product is also great advice if you're starting a business. Being active, probably the most important thing, Sam, we've mentioned it here. You know, face-to-face advice is so valued. Robo-advice on its own, you know, didn't work out. Um, so people value people people value the whites of the eyes and you can't if you're sitting even through a zoom call really read somebody's whole body you need to get in front of them you need to build those long long long-term relationships no like trust we've already mentioned it as well so the more you can be around the people that you're going to be serving the better and just do as much as possible actually one of our recruits that you know well is Natasha uh, who's been on Sam's podcast and when she first met Sam she was at the beginning of her journey with SJP she was probably like I was when I was in my juice business a bit bright-eyed and nervous and maybe not as confident as she is today however in the last year she's been 70 plus networking events That to me is a shining example of somebody who has got outside their comfort zone. They've overcome that barrier in their mind and are now thriving. And then one of the mantras in the academy is fail fast and learn. So we've already mentioned that. And so I'm just going to end on that one. Don't be scared. Get out there. Try things. Sam's already alluded to 80% polished is good enough. Um, Nobody's going to be looking at that scroll on their Instagram you know, looking at your face thinking, I think they're a bit nervous. Nobody can see that. So just do it. 
I love that. Excellent tips. One of, you know, and just to sort of back that up, be curious, right? Curious. Be interested in other people. Be interested in their business. Ask for their opinion. You know, if you've got a really interesting product or a solution, go and find 20 people you want to sell it to and say, can I tell you something that I have that I think will add value to the business? It's not the finished article yet. I'd love your opinion on it if you've got 15 minutes. And you pitch it to them and you ask their opinion back on it and you say, what would you pay for that? And I guarantee you they'll give a figure. And by the end of those 20 calls that you you've made in a business development curiosity state where there isn't pressure to actually sell or to generate a client, you will result in some relationships and you've built a relationship with somebody based upon what their opinion is and what their advice is. During that whole process, there's a chemical reaction that happens in your body, oxytocin, right? The love drug. When I look somebody in the eyes and I have a deep, meaningful conversation with them and I explain something to them and then I listen back, a connection is formed. Yeah. There's no denying that. So get out face-to-face as well as social media. Start meeting these people. Start pitching exactly the same way Natasha Percy Baxter has done it. You've got to be in it to win it. 100%. I love that. So, Sam, thank you so much for being the host today and asking me all the questions. Um, is there anywhere that people can get in touch with you? How can they find you? Absolutely. Well, you can find me on YouTube. So we're investing a bit of energy and time now into YouTube. So there's going to be loads of great content about careers within the financial planning profession on YouTube. You can find all my podcasts on there at the moment, Spotify, Apple, uh, all the big hits. You'll find me on there. But most importantly, come and give me a follow on LinkedIn. That's where I live. That's my ecosystem. It's a careers-based platform. And that is what I love talking about, financial planning careers. Thank you, Sam. This was the latest episode of The Switch, where we switched it up and swapped places with Sam Oaks as the host today. If you like what you heard, please come and find us on Spotify, follow us and give us a five-star review. 